From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. What I discovered from just being around her is that her sense of value, her sense of self-worth was not derived from how people perceived her body as a Black woman in the United States. She seemed to be grounded or located in terms of her identity, oriented in another space. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Anajay X.O. Woodbine. He's assistant professor of philosophy and religion at American University, and he's the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Today we're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. Professor Onaje Exo Woodbine, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you for having me. I I was astonished and amazed by this book because it's a powerful account of one woman's life, both in the struggles of the physical world, but also the struggles of the spirit world. And for listeners who may not know what I mean by that, we'll get into all of that in the course of this conversation. But I wanted to start with one particular piece that you wrote in your book, Take Back What the Devil Stole. I'm just going to read a portion of it, and then I'm going to ask some questions to begin to expand on it. You write in the book, although Donna, and this is Miss Donna Haskins, who's an African-American woman that you've been working with and interviewing for several years, you say, although Donna had been mistreated and abused on the horizontal planes of this world for most of her life as a result of her status as a poor black woman, in the spiritual world, she now stands upright, vertical, and proud, her tongue filled with the fire of the Holy Ghost, her hands charged with a life force potent enough to repel any woman-hating visitor back to the abyss from which he came. And and that, to me, seemed like a really good place to start this conversation. This woman sounds amazing. Tell us a little bit about how you first met Miss Donna Haskins. Wow, Donna, she is absolutely an amazing woman, David. I grew up in inner-city Boston in Roxbury in a low-income, impoverished African-American neighborhood. And growing up for the basketball courts, especially for the young men, was really the only place where we felt safe enough to grieve, where we felt safe enough to let go of our mask of masculinity in the streets. And we experienced quite a bit of, I guess I would call them sacred experiences on the basketball court. And so when I was writing my first book, I really just learning about the basketball court as the sacred, I discovered that the Black women in this community 
were actually the source of the theological ideas around the sacred for many of the young men who were using the basketball court in that way. And it was one young man in particular named Jason, whose mother was addicted to opioids, who had been homeless off and on. And he had told me about this woman, this special woman named Donna Haskins, who he said had basically transformed his life. She had seen him one day, a stranger really, and she just told him seemingly out of the blue that he was going to be okay. And the things that he was going through, that he would make it out. And she gave him some really amazing advice. And after getting to know Jason, I eventually decided I really needed to meet these women who had done so much to take care and heal the community. So I decided to go see Miss Donna Haskins. Well, and I, I want to make sure that listeners understand the, the process here. So you started out telling one story, the way in which basketball courts in inner city areas like Boston become kind of sacred spaces. And in the process of telling that story, you began to look around at the edges of that. And these are my words, not yours, but you began to see that these sacred spaces were surrounded by a support system of sacred women. And so you turned outward and you said, now I need to tell that story. I need to talk about the women. Do I have the movement of that right? That's exactly right. You know, I spent four years on those basketball courts. And for Jason in particular, he was someone who started going to the court very young to let out his pain. He told me that when he was about four years old, his grandmother would sing him Christian hymns. And his grandmother passed away. And he would go to the basketball court to be with her. He, he almost thought of the court itself as this kind of maternal space where you go to let go of yourself and be vulnerable and, and maybe come back into the streets a little differently, almost like a rebirth in a sense. And he would come home with his eyes red, he said, because he'd be crying on that basketball court. And eventually he wasn't able to play. He was injured and he really felt like he had lost. It's like losing your church or, you know, losing the, the very thing that tells you you're a human being when you live in a society where as a black male, it seems that you are excluded from human relations or excluded from the human species in a sense. And so one day Donna was with his mother because his mother knew that Donna was a special woman and asked her to come to her house to help the mother with her own addictions. And Donna sat across the couch from Jason and began to tell Jason all about how he would play basketball again and what he would do in the future in his life. And she basically changed his perspective in his life. And they became very close and she became a mentor. And so I had a relationship with Jason from spending all those years on the courts. 
And he began to slowly tell me about this woman. He called her the lady of God at first. And he just began to tell me little things about her. For example, there are a lot of memorials in the city, makeshift memorials where people have died from violence. And apparently Donna would walk by one of those and see someone grieving. And she, Jason told me, said she could see the person who had died around that memorial and sometimes wanting to get revenge for their death and causing more turmoil for the living. And she would speak to those who were around there getting ready to continue the cycle of violence and tell them, hey, listen, you've got to move on. And she would also help the person who had died move on. These were the kind of things that Jason was telling me. And as you began, it's one thing to think about urban spaces where Black people have been crammed in where in, in conditions where they can't express their humanity. And think about that in terms of economics and politics and, you know, the social situation. But I had never really considered that there was another dimension behind all of this as well. And that people living in these conditions were involved in trying to make meaning out of their situation by being involved with that other dimension. So that was really a powerful kind of revelation for me. And that's, that was sort of my introduction to Donna and other women around this basketball space. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Onaje XO Woodbine, and we're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. Before we dig into the story of Miss Donna Haskins and, and how she came to become this woman of God, as your friend Jason referred to her, you used a phrase a moment ago that I want to make sure my listeners are tracking with. You said that the basketball courts in some ways transformed into maternal space. And I'd like for you to explain to my listeners what you mean by that phrase maternal space and how that contrasts to the other types of space that might be found in a place like Roxbury there in Boston. Yeah, cultural narratives around masculinity that we have that have come down through the history of slavery and lynching and Jim Crow have, of course, seeped into these urban spaces, these inner city spaces. And these images distort Black humanity. You know, many of them are call-up associations of aggression, of, you know, anger, violence, uh, criminality, and so forth. And in many ways, you know, when you, as a young man, you're growing up in these environments, some of that stuff gets internalized, you know, and you take on this mask of protection. You know, you, you, some people call it a cool pose where you have to hide your emotions. You have to pretend that you are hard, that you can be violent at any second. And you really rob yourself of your full humanity. And when you walk onto the basketball court, that threshold between, you know, the street corners and where you have to 
express those forms of masculinity. And the basketball court, which becomes a safe space, you know, in that space, you can be, you can express emotion, you can cry, you can be vulnerable, you can share intimacy, intimate feelings with other men. And, you know, that for many of, of us is how we feel at home with our mothers, with our grandmothers, you know, where we can be truly human. And the other thing about that is that many women are around the court and around the space as well. I remember Jason telling me, for example, that one day he went to the court, his cousin had gotten stabbed several times and he went to the court and he was just playing and he was just playing his heart out, grieving and telling his pain and his story with his basketball movements. And he saw a woman who was a trainer on the sidelines and she started crying. And, he, and then he said, he started crying. He said, because somebody saw him. He wasn't invisible anymore. So her ability to empathize with him allowed him to empathize with himself. And so that's what I mean by a kind of maternal space that allows you to access your full humanity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Anaje X.O. Woodbine. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University, and he's the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip Hop, and Street Basketball, which came out in 2016. Today we're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, An African-American Prophet's Encounters in the Spirit World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, our guest is Professor Onaje X.O. Woodbine. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University. He's the author of the book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball that came out in 2016. Today we're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. And the prophet that he's referring to there is Miss Donna Haskins, who's an African-American woman who wrestles with both structural inequity in the streets of Boston, but also with spirits in an alternate dimension. And so we're going to be getting into that in our conversation. But before we turn to that, I'd like to ask you to explain to my listeners what kind of book this is, because as I was reading it, you did a deep dive into the life and the background of Miss Donna Haskins. I feel like I really knew her by the time I got done with the book, both the good and the bad. 
So in one part, the book is ethnography. It's telling someone's story. But it also seemed to me like you were going through that and helping the reader to understand that so that in the third part of the book, we could understand this turn to the spirit world. So if you could talk to me a little bit about how you chose to structure the book. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something I think in terms of methodology that is a question that scholars ask quite often and, and is really important. For me, ethnography is collaborative. I find myself, unlike traditional ethnographers or anthropologists who go out and study communities that they're unfamiliar with, I sort of turn back to my own community. And I did that in this book for several reasons. One, as a scholar of religion, it, it is important to be an outsider and, and carry an, an objective lens to people's encounters with the divine. I think you really learn something in approaching it that way. But there's always the risk of stripping that person or that community of their agency or meaning. It's as if the scholar of religion drops in and comes up with a model of religion and simply imposes that model onto experience as if the model and the experience are identical. And that's far from the case. We all know by now that language doesn't match experience. That meaning seeps out of the crevices of what we can actually say about it. And so for me, it was very important to think about this book and this ethnography as a intersubjective collaborative exploration of religious experience and the religious experience of women. So at one hand, you're right, I'm a storyteller, I'm an outsider, but on the other hand, Donna's meanings, Donna's voice, Donna's experiences are important to me, and I don't dismiss them. I think of it as almost a double reading, seeing from the outside and then setting aside my own assumptions so that we all, readers and myself, can experience Donna's voice and presence as authoritative. And that is really what I was trying to, what I was, so I would call this book an ethnographic spiritual biography. And in, in the tradition, for example, the book Mama Lola by Karen McCarthy Brown and so forth. So that, that, that was my overall approach. That's really helpful. And thank you for that explanation. And, and so as a reader of the book, it became clear to me that as you were sitting on this sofa next to Miss Donna over the months and years that you spent with her, you begin to let the reader know that her experiences are affecting your experiences. There are points where she'll say, she says at one point, I'm surrounded by 13 ancestors from Africa at all times. And then she turns to you and she says, 
Onaje, you're surrounded by ancestors too. They're from Africa too. And you report that you find this incredibly affirming. And, and there's a phrase that you use at one point in the middle of the book. You say that you and Miss Donna are working together on an archive of conjure. And I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about kind of, because now we're starting to get into kind of how she's affecting you, this double story that you're telling together. Tell me about that archive of conjure. Well, you know, I think the place where culture exists, where human language exists, the place where we make meaning is really neither objective or subjective. It's a third area. It's what Donald Winnicott, the famous psychologist of religion, calls potential space or transitional space. And so the question that I kept asking myself is that does reality exist outside of human perception? In other words, is my perception of phenomena, of the phenomenal world, does it take precedence over Donna's? Do I have some access to existence that that she does not because I'm a scholar? Do I have some access to truth that she does not? And vice versa. And the answer I kept coming back with was, no, that we're constantly negotiating meetings. So it would be silly for me as a religious studies scholar to just dismiss her explanations for existence and for what was happening between us. And so I allowed myself to live in that third area. It's not as if I completely dismissed my objective point of view as a scholar. But I held it in tension with what I'm calling this third area. And so some surprising things happened to me. As you say, I was affected as a human being within this third area in relation to Donna. So I thought of myself in terms of my philosophical anthropology as a relational being. In relation to Donna, I was impacted as a human being. And so I had grown up in a family where ancestors were very important, where the past was still present. And I think this is true for a lot of African-Americans who experienced the trauma of the Middle Passage. And because of the disconnect with the past, ancestors become even more vital, right? It's like you don't know you don't have something until it's gone. And so I think that Donna's discussion of ancestors and her really bringing ancestors into the room with us, into the book with us, really brought up memories for me about my own needs as an African-American to connect with something prior to the trauma of slavery and that alienation. So that was an amazing meeting point. And then to discover that she had Jamaican ancestry and so did I, and that she basically thinks of me as her child that she lost as a result of trauma in her own life. That really began to hit home and we, we became, in a sense, a spiritual family through the process of writing the book. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Anajay X. O. Woodbine. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University, and we're talking today about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. You mentioned a moment ago that your relationship with Miss Donna was not simply that of a, a kind of distanced ethnographer, but you really came in many ways to have a kind of spiritual intimacy with her to the point where, as you mentioned, she thinks of you as, in some ways, the reborn or reincarnated son that she lost out of trauma. So let me take a step back and just make sure that listeners are aware that Miss Donna is the survivor of tremendous trauma. You spend two-thirds of the book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, showing us how extreme poverty and toxic environments, both emotionally and chemically, really affected the life of Miss Donna. She's, she's not literate. She has very little economic means. She has been abused by multiple partners through the years. And yet she is a person that, as you say at several points in the book, carries herself with the regal bearing of a queen. Like she, she is very self-possessed and very aware of her power as a result of these things happening in the spirit realm. And so even though it's important for listeners to understand the material situation that she's been in, I want to shift in our conversation to talk about the third part of the book where we really get into the spirit realm aspect of this. Years ago in Atlanta, I knew a musician who at one point I asked him what kind of music he played, and he very proudly said, we play melodic hard rock, emphasis on the melodic and the hard. And if, <laughs> if I was to describe how you have written Miss Donna here in your book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, she is a prayer warrior, emphasis on the prayer and the warrior. Help us to understand this power that Miss Donna wields in that spirit world. Oh, that's a great way of putting it, David. Emphasis on the warrior. You know, Donna is her personality as a survivor of uncountable structural, interpersonal, personal violence in the streets it just transcends into her relationship with the spirit world. You know, for Donna, she, as I say, she is comical. She's a funny person. She has a street sense of humor. She doesn't take anything from anybody. She'll tell you in a minute, nah, you, no one's going to punk me. And I was amazed at how that part of her, that indomitable part of her, really transferred into her relationship with transcendence and with the sacred. You know, when I first met her, she, as you say, she had very little money, but she wouldn't take money from anybody for any of the things that she did for people, for the ways that she helped others. And she always had a smile on her face. She always had her head up high, her back straight. If you offered her something, and one time I brought someone to see her who was, who was a celebrity, very well known, and Donna acted as if the person 
was hardly there because she was at that moment in communication with the spiritual co-presences around her. So Donna's value, what I discovered from just being around her is that her sense of value, her sense of self-worth was not derived from how people perceived her body as a Black woman in the United States. She seemed to be grounded or located in terms of her identity, oriented in another space, outside of basic cultural norms and narratives. And I think that, and I began to think of this in this way, that Donna's imagination for her had become a tool of the spirit. That in some way she had used her imagination as a kind of technology that allowed her to not only survive, but to navigate and thrive the material conditions, the the dangerous material conditions in which she lived and breathed every day. So that's how I I would characterize her personality in terms of a a warrior, a woman. And we can talk about the kind of things she ends up doing in the spirit world as a warrior. Well, and I really do want to get into that. But on the way to that, as I was reading your book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, part of what I was trying to do was I was trying to find the right box to put Miss Donna in. And I kept saying, so is she a healer? Is she a fortune teller? And what I finally came to What I realized is that I was reading the spiritual biography that was very similar to the spiritual biographies that I've read of the desert prophets in the first three centuries of Christianity, the people who would go out to the caves at the edge of the wilderness, and they would live for years and years, and they would deny themselves, and they would basically live as hermits. But then what we're told is that they, after that winnowing process, they are prepared to battle the devil and to go against the demons. And what I'm seeing in the third part of your book is Miss Donna has gone through a winnowing process. She's lived at the edge of the wilderness. She has She's taken vows about her body. She's living like a nun would live, but she also has this power to literally stand in the fray and battle against demons. And when I say that, listeners are going to say, what did he just say? And so I'd like for you to expand on that, because what do I mean when I say that Miss Donna battles against demons? Yeah. Yeah. Really great question. So two questions there. So one, you're right. I mean, there's a tradition within Christianity and in other monotheistic traditions around the ascetic and mystics. And Howard Thurman, the great Black theologian, Martin Luther King's mentor, spiritual leader, the civil rights movement, made used to make a distinction between negation mystics and affirmation mystics. And negation mystics, he said, were those that in order to achieve a a spiritual growth with God would have to negate the world, right? And I think Thurman would think of himself as more of an affirmation mystic, someone who in in order to encounter the divine, yes, there is a period of introspection, as you say, But that introspection, that deep dive within should lead one, Thurman said, to want to see harmony in the world. It's as if 
Thurman thought, when you go deep enough within and create harmony within your inner community, then you can't help but want to see that kind of harmonious that or that beloved community in the world. And I think that's precisely what Donna is about. She's an affirmation mystic. She's somebody who encountered, as Thurman said, her, the world with her back against the wall. But her technique of resisting that evil, the evils of racism, of sexism, of all of those isms, was not to negate the world. It was to go within and discover herself, to question, as she said, the presumptions that she, the baggage that she held as a result of all that trauma you talked about her growing up. And once she came out of it and she had her encounters with herself and the Holy Spirit, and as she says, she encountered other divine beings. And we can talk about she mixes a bunch of divinities in her own thing. And of course, at the apex is Jesus for her, is her central God. But once she goes through this process of transformation of herself, of creating harmony, then Donna is ready to go to battle with those evils that exist in the world. How would Thurman and Martin Luther King thought of the demonic in terms of social and psychological realities? For Thurman, demons were things like fear, hatred, self-deception. And for Martin Luther King, demons were things like the more social, like poverty, racism, and war. And so what we mean by the devil and what Donna means by the devil are those structures of society, the things behind the things, those narratives, those insidious narratives that shape so much of the institutional violence and interpersonal violence that comes down hard on disinherited and marginalized people in the United States. She's talking about those things that then end up seeping into our very thoughts. They become hatred in us. They become fear in us. And we then act them out in our bodies in terms of violence towards one another. So when Donna talks about the demonic, when she talks about the devil, when she talks about evil, these are what she is referring to. And she literally goes to war with these things on a daily basis, both in the streets, in her house, and in faraway places, because she has a theory of multi, a multi-dimensional universe that is embedded in the physical one that we can see every day. So she is a very, she has a very complex theology and imagination. And this is what drew me to it, that this is a woman with an eighth grade education growing up in the streets of Boston that people would dismiss as not even a human being 
who has a, a richer theological imagination than most theologians educated at the greatest academic institutions in the country. For me, that was a powerful encounter and revelation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Onaje X. O. Woodbine. We're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Onaje X. O. Woodbine. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University. He's the author of the 2016 book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Today we're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. A number of years ago, I happened upon a novel that really just opened my mind. It was a novel by uh, an author named Amos Chuchola, and it was called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And what amazed me about this novel was that the, the characters that Chuchola wrote about would be walking in the world that's the physical world like you and I are in, but then they would, they would encounter these spirits that were trying to lead them astray or do them harm or just mess with them. And what really struck me was how porous the world of Chuchola was between these spirits and, and these physical beings who were trying to just make their way in a world that was full of suffering and full of pain. And then years later, when I was studying religion, I, I learned about religion that exists from the Caribbean called Santeria where it's, as you say, it's a mixture of Christianity and more native religions. And there is, again, this porousness between the physical world and the spiritual world. 
there's not really a classification for what the person that you have been working with in this book, Take Back with the Devil Stole Miss Donna, what she believes. She put together her own religious theology. And as you say, it's a very complex religious theology. But I wonder if you could situate it a little bit with these other more established religions like Santeria or like other native religions or with Catholicism or other types of Christianity. How does her religion fit with these other religious expressions? Yeah, you, you make an excellent point that she's really a, a bricolaire. She's sort of crafting her own theological imagination out of a, a really mixed array of religious languages and, and grammars. And in that sense, she represents a amazing instance of multi-religious belonging. She shares, as you say, some affinities with the folks who practice the Afro-Cuban tradition, Santeria, as you say, because Santeria, a tradition born of descendants of African slaves, combines the Catholic traditions of the saints and some of the sacraments with the Orisha or the life forces in nature that are thought to guide human consciousness from the perspective of the Yoruba-speaking nation out of what is now southwestern Nigeria. And so Donna really mixes these traditions. She is very close, for example, to St. Michael and uses some of the gifts of St. Michael in her prayer and in her battle against racism and other isms that she encounters in the world. But she also allows herself to be embodied by ancestors, Afro-Jamaican ancestors, or for example, messenger birds that come out of this Afro-Jamaican traditions and traditions of these more African-derived religious traditions. So it's really amazing. How I would characterize this is, is this, is that on the one hand, Donna's Christianity allows her to have a sense that there's something wrong with this world, you know, what Christians refer to as sin, and even the body. And that therefore, there must be another place we should call home. So Donna brings that sensibility into her understanding of herself in the world. But on the other hand, Donna does not dismiss the body, right? Donna has a sense for the beauty of the world. Donna is very in touch with the elements, with nature. And so the African-derived sensibilities around the sacred being right here with us, not somewhere apart from this world, but present and overlapping with the material world. And so you see that both of these things and that tension between these two worldviews and perspectives sort of in Donna's life as she 
as she tries to cobble together and craft her spiritual identity. So that's how I would characterize her way of bringing all of these things, these religious traditions together. Well, and you mentioned that in the in all of this mixture, you said at one point, and you say at several points in the book, always at the top of that is Jesus. And you even report that she has said to you that she has encountered Jesus directly in these visions. So I wonder, as you have been speaking to her, how does she understand Jesus? And does she understand Jesus in the Christian way? And I don't even know really what I mean by that. But does she understand it in the way that, say, a theologian or a priest would understand it? Or does she have an extra understanding of Jesus that maybe is unavailable to the theologian or the priest? That's a really good question. You know, I think she has two understandings of Jesus that, you know, I think theologians also grapple with. The first is the Jesus, the metaphysical Jesus, you know, the Jesus that leads to salvation, the Jesus that is equal to God and to the divine, the Jesus that's not of this world. Donna has a deep sense of that Jesus, a personal relationship with that Jesus. As you say, that Jesus, she encounters that Jesus when she, on one one evening through her practice, her mindfulness practice, which I would refer to as her own Christian mindfulness practice, she leaves her body and encounters this Jesus in one of these dimensions within her multidimensional universe. And that Jesus takes her sins away, you know, a very traditional sort of Christian understanding of salvation. But then she also has this other Jesus, which is more of a historical Jesus. And I don't mean this in the sense that Donna has a good understanding of the history of Christianity. But what I mean is that she has a sense of Jesus that is someone who comes to liberate the oppressed. You know, the Jesus who was a poor Jew in the Roman Empire in the first century and who was crucified, you know, was an oppressed minority and was crucified by a powerful majority. And that Jesus and that sense of Jesus leads her to fight against what we've been calling the demonic, you know, this hegemonic reality, structural violence that exists in American society. So that Jesus leads her to save young black men on the streets. It it leads her to want to heal a cancer patient who she sees sitting on a bench crying. You know, that Jesus, it leads her to want to fight a sexual predator who she thinks is harming people or to pray, for example, at a Roxbury courthouse when she sees all the young black men being incarcerated. You know, so those two versions of Jesus. And then I would say Donna's Jesus is a liberator of women as well. Her Jesus takes women seriously. You know, her Jesus, you went, when she first went to church, a black, a black church, it was the pastor who said, 
You know, if men aren't treating you right, then kick them to the curb. And she said, wow, I had never heard about that kind of Jesus. And so that becomes an important thing for her, the Jesus that liberates women, that liberates disinherited people. And I think she's able to successfully hold those two things together. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Anaje X. O. Woodbine. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University. We're talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world. It strikes me, Professor Woodbine, that in a different time and place, a woman with the experiences of Miss Donna would be probably uh, a nun or uh, a religious woman, but it, it strikes me that she would even be what in the Middle Ages was called an anchoress, someone who is the spiritual bedrock of an entire community. I'm thinking of, of St. Teresa of Avila or Julian of Norwich or St. Therese of the Child Jesus, like people around whom entire movements build up to reflect on their thought and to try and understand what their spiritual insights were. I wonder, as you have been working with Miss Donna, what you think her impact on the world has been and what mm. you think her impact on the world will be. Wow. That is a really powerful question and, I, and a question that I think in many ways that story is still being written and is indeterminate in a sense. But... I will say that I think Donna's identity in the spirit world as a child of light, you know, she, she refers to herself as a child of light because during her interdimensional travels into the other world, she was given that name, she says, by the Holy Spirit. And as a child of light, Donna is most interested with helping humanity, whether it's her local community, and now because of maybe the book and our collaboration, maybe a broader audience, a more national audience, that her overarching goal is to help free people from the assumptions from the presupposing activities they bring into the world because of structural racism and, and sexism and poverty, those kinds of baggage that we carry around as, as human beings and as whole communities, those collective traumas and collective histories that we all live with, that her example and her life story might help shed some light on that darkness, on those evils. You know, I think about Amanda Gorman, the, the young black poet who spoke at, you know, the recent inauguration. And she talked about the light, if only we could be it, you know, and that to me is really, is really what Donna is all about. She's trying, as one of my mentors, Walter Fluka, Howard Thurman scholar said, stay in the light. She's just trying to live in the light. 
She's trying to expose those shadows that are always present that shade our unconscious and sometimes lead us not to act as we ought to be as human beings. You know, so I think that's that will be her legacy. And she's going to continue to do the kind of work that she does, freeing, trying to free people. Well, you've mentioned at several points in the conversations, and you talk about it in your book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, that part of her job is to show us the things behind the things. I love that phrase. But it's clear from both this conversation and from the book that she has in some ways shown you the things behind the things. And so I'm wondering, how has your life changed and how is it changing as a result of this time that you've spent with Miss Donna? Well, sure. I mean, one of the things behind the things for me was my baggage around gender and privilege around masculinity, you know, where we started this conversation. Realizing my own shadow, right, my own areas that need light. Realizing that, wow, you know, what is it like to walk in a Black woman's body in this world. The assumptions that people made about Donna's humanity simply because she possessed a woman's body and the kind of violences that she went through and is continuing to go through. Those things were just so far outside of my awareness, my everyday. And I remember I had finished the book and I went to a monument in Boston of Phyllis Wheatley, the first, you know, she was enslaved, first African-American to write, publish a book of poetry. And she had been enslaved and there's a monument there in Boston of her life. And I visited that place really after writing a first draft of the book. And I just started crying. I really did. I really did. I just, I broke down. Just thinking, you know, a couple hundred years apart that her and Donna had shared so much trauma because of the color of their skin and their gender. And I just broke down and it taught me a lot about myself Donna taught me a lot about myself. And I'll always carry her example with me. If I may ask, I'm sure that you've shared it with her. What does Miss Donna think of the book? Oh, wow. You know, actually, soon after I went to see that monument of Phyllis Wheatley, who was a writer herself, I went to visit Donna because I wanted to read Donna a draft of the entire book. And I sat down with her for two days. And part of the reason I wanted to read it to her was that, you know, writing is a cultural practice and it implies power. And again, I wanted this to be collaborative. And the other reason was Donna's voice needed to be authoritative and central, I thought. And as I read her the book, we laughed, 
we cried. And I just remember her saying to me, thank you, Onaje. Thank you. You believe me. You believe me. And I realized what she was really trying to tell me was that I didn't strip her of her agency, her meaning. I didn't render her invisible with this work. And that ultimately the book meant that her life mattered. And that was really the biggest gift I could receive. Well, Onaje XO Woodbine, it is not just a gift that you received. It's a gift that I received as a reader. It's a gift that I hope that my listeners will receive by picking up your book, Take Back What the Devil Stole. Thank you for the years that you spent in conversation with Miss Donna, researching and crafting this book. Thank you for writing this book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Oh, David, thank you for having me. It was great talking with you. We've been speaking today with Onaje XO Woodbine. He's assistant professor of philosophy and religion at American University. He's the author of the 2016 book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip Hop, and Street Basketball. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Take Back What the Devil Stole, an African-American prophet's encounters in the spirit world, which tells the story of Miss Donna Haskins, an African-American woman who wrestles with both the structural inequity in the streets of Boston and fights battles in the spirit world. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.